Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Grief and Rebirth Podcast, where we share enlightening insights and wisdom gleaned from speaking with grief and trauma specialists, mediums, healers, and people who have inspiring, uplifting stories to share. As the creator and host of Grief and Rebirth, I could not be more excited and honored to introduce all of you to Ron Glenn Kelly, our incredible guest, whose personal story about moving through the fire of traumatic loss opened the door to his life mission, which is to inspire hope and healing on the subject of men and grief. Ron has honorably served as a military policeman in the United States Marine Corps, as a sworn police officer, a federal agent, and also as a business executive. But Ron's world was shattered when he lost his precious 16-year-old son and only child to hypoplastic left heart syndrome in 2013. Now an experienced keynote speaker and workshop presenter, Ron mixes his own loss experience with knowledge and humor to help business leaders awaken to the fact that the bereaved who work for them do not just get over it. He provides awareness that grief is not just about the loss of a loved one, pointing out that employees can also experience profound grief after losses such as an unwanted divorce, a major change to personal health, a grown child leaving the nest, the death, the death of a company executive, a co-worker, and much more. Ron, I'm delighted to welcome you to Grief and Rebirth Podcast. Your son, Jonathan, brought the concept of unconditional love into your life, and his tragic sudden death is now the catalyst for you to help so many others. Let's begin what is going to be our fascinating eye and heart-opening conversation with this question. Can you please share with our listeners how your son Jonathan taught you about unconditional love and also share with us details of your deeply traumatic loss? Absolutely. And first and foremost, the delight is all mine. I'm honored to be here and I appreciate the, the opportunity to share with your listeners. And I, I can only hope that I can add some valuable content. Thank you, Ron. Thank you so much. The story of John's humblings of me actually began when he was born. He was born in 1997 with that condition that you spoke of, hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And it was, it was undiagnosed and it led to the first day of his life with him being handed to his mother and I and being told that he might not even survive his first day of life. Um, basically, hypoplastic left heart syndrome is when the left side of the heart, the two chambers fail, fail to develop in the womb. Um, you know, 10 years before he was born, he would, they would have simply handed him to us and said, enjoy what little time you have with him because he's not going to make it. Um, that was a humbling experience in itself, but it became even more humbling as John went through a series of excruciating open heart surgeries, three of them before he was even the age of two, where 
I lived for months at a time in and out of hospitals. And if it wasn't during a surgery, it was during a time where we were doing home care planning for the next surgery to come up. But it was in those hospitals where I actually got to realize how, again, I'll use the word humbled we were. And this coming from a guy, and you brought in my intro by saying that, yes, I was a jarhead and I was a cop. And I was somebody that, that lived off of ego at the time. I had a very unhealthy ego, as you can imagine. Uh, and not every former jarhead and cop does, but I did. So we'll leave it at that. But as I roamed through the hospitals, I, I noticed so many children who had other maladies that were actually far worse than John. I, I saw kids that were sitting in playrooms who had only half of a body, nothing from the torso down, and yet they played lovingly with their parents. And and I realized that, that they're telling me that I'm going to go home with my child and he's going to be relatively okay. His prognosis was, after all those open heart surgeries, was for a full life, albeit with medical interventions along the way. Um, humbling experience. And, and what I got to see in, in other people made me open up my eyes and realize what it was. But as he grew and he thrived, uh, he did some amazing things as far as his love of life. And I don't know whether it was the fact that he literally had half a heart that was probably the size of the Empire State Building because of what he had been through. But he was the Pied Piper of the neighborhood. He attracted kids. And I always had a house full of kids and a a basketball court out in my driveway full of children every day after school and all weekend long and never had a, a soda left in the garage refrigerator when the day was done. Uh, he just, he loved life and he spoke of life so often. Uh, it was uh, when he was 16 years of age where he had gone through, and I'll, I'll give you the air quotes, uh, he'd gone through a relatively routine heart catheterization, just more or less exploratory to see how his heart was doing. Because as I said, we knew that there would be interventions, but in recovery, his heart failed and they could not revive him. And, and I take great solace today in the fact that he passed away and took his final breath in my arms. Wow. I, I got to say goodbye. Wow, that is, I'm so sorry for your loss, but I'm so amazed at what you've done with it. And for our listeners, who are, many of them are ignorant of this phrase, like I am, what's a jarhead? Uh, it's a, another name for Marine. It comes from the haircut that we used to be exclusive to only Marines, where you had the, uh, the, let's just say the bald sides and a tuft of hair up top. Oh. Looking like the top of a jar. So oh. the vernacular came out jarhead. Oh, now I there's understand. Other names, there's leathernecks. Marines are called leathernecks because of the high collar they wore that once used to be leather. Protecting oh. from swords back in the days oh. when you were ship. So jarhead think- is just a, it's an endearing phrase that doesn't upset Marines to be called jarhead. Okay, well, you know what? People are here on Grief and Rebirth to learn a lot of things. So now they've just learned about jarheads. (laughs) Could you define complicated grief and tell us how you recovered after losing Jonathan from such a traumatic loss in 2013, including how how did his death become a catalyst for you to help so many others? You know, I think the complicated grief that I went through, and first and foremost, complicated grief can come in many forms. Uh, there's complicated grief that comes from complete repression of your emotions after that, avoiding the grief entirely, using other means to to avoid the grief, as in what I did. Uh, I went through a period where I avoided and repressed the grief because I went through an identity crisis, if you will. I had I'd once been a Marine or a Jarhead. I'd once been a cop. Uh, I gave those identities up, but I had no intention of ever giving up being a father. But for many of us that have only children, just just a single child, uh, when that child is gone, 
we now Who have are an identity you? crisis. Am I still a parent? Right. Um, that led me to do things like walk by a picture of Jonathan on the wall and avoid looking at it. That led me to walking by his bedroom door and, and not acknowledging that that was his bedroom door. But that left me doing a number of other things to avoid the pain, like going back to work quickly because I was in charge of 100 or 1,500 employees. I could take control at work. And at home, I couldn't take control. I couldn't control losing John. Now, was this while you were in the Marines? You were in charge of 1,500? This was when you were a business executive. Which business, part? Executive, business executive. I had gone back to work rather quickly. I'd, I was probably blessed. I was one of the few. I could take as much time as I wanted to off and not worry about uh, bereavement leave or pay or any of that. And yet, I came back quickly. And I came back as a form of, if you will, for some people, it's actually therapeutic to return to work and give themselves something to do. I recognize that I did it out of the need to go back and control my environment because as a man, I need to control. And I had lost control. I had no control over John's death. And that bothered me a great deal. And I'll, I'll give you another hint. I spent more time out in my wood shop after John passed because I'm a, a woodworking hobbyist. Um, had I not gotten control of myself after that, I think every piece of furniture in my home would have been made out of something that I made in my workshop because I could go out to my workshop in the evenings and on weekends and I could control what I was doing. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes total sense to me. So I lived like this for about six months. And then one fateful morning as I was showering for work, um, you know, I had programmed myself to ignore the fact that John wasn't here anymore, to, to not even think about it. And I had stepped into the shower after hearing a forecast of the possibility for a couple inches of snow. And, you know, being in the Mid-South, a couple inches of snow is going to lock the city up for, you know, for the entire day. And I thought to myself, well, I wonder if John's going to have school today, if they'll cancel it. And I stopped myself and said, oh, my gosh, I, I thought I was able to get those thoughts out of my mind. I, I stopped hearing the dog jump off the bed upstairs and thinking it was John. I, I had stopped hearing the back door open and wonder if it was John coming in to get something out of the refrigerator to eat. I had programmed myself not to, but here I was in the shower wondering if my child was going to have school that day. And I stopped for a second and then I felt it. I felt John move into me and I felt John move all around me. And what did it feel like? It just, it just. A, a complete, uh, the easiest way to say it is not just the hair standing up on you because I was in the shower, quite frankly, not to get too visual with it, but not to get too graphic or anything. Yeah, just right? that, that feeling when the hair stand up and you're tingling all over your body, a light tingling. And as I started to feel that I couldn't see him, but I felt like he was right in front of me for the moment. And the only thing I could say at that time was hi, baby. He answered but he didn't answer the way I thought the, the first thing he said to me was, how dare you dad? He said, how dare you not grieve me? He said, how dare you not think that I'm still your, or that you're still my father. And that's all he said. And when he went away, it changed my life. He's, he's come back many times, but never in that form or fashion. I dream about John a lot and he gives me messages in my dream. I talked to him. I've probably talked to him a dozen times already today. Uh, I believe in my maker, and I believe one day he is going to ask me why I speak with Jonathan more than I speak with him now. <laughs> I, I say that jokingly, but I'll stand in front of the mirror wondering if I've got the right color tie on, and I'll say, John, is this the right tie? Um, but he's in my life. He lives inside of me. While he was going through um, his recoveries from his open heart surgeries, because he had a couple more along the way at the ages of six and eight some other medical interventions, he always allowed himself to be researched openly by hospital personnel. 
and told me when he was 12, he wanted this so that other children born after him might have a better way of recovering than he did. That's amazing. So he what served. What an amazing kid. Yes, he did. Legacy. So after his first visit, I figured that was a legacy for me, was to go back into service. And I did. So, wow. So with that, mm-hmm. because I want to talk to you more about this, right. I want to take a moment and uh, I want to thank you so much, but we're going to take a moment to allow a minute for our sponsors who keep this podcast free for our listeners. We'll be right back. We're back. Thank you for tuning in to my illuminating interview today with Ron Glenn Kelly. Let's continue on with Ron about men and grief with this question. So we were talking about Jonathan. Well, what happened to you mm-hmm. in that shower with Jonathan? And how did this inspire you to start to do the work you're doing? And I know you also wrote a book called Sometimes I Cry in the Shower. I did. So tell our listeners what all of that was about. That title is about. Does that title title sound familiar to what I just went through? Yes, yes. <laughs> I had uh, purposely thought that I needed to go get support for uh, the grief that I was going through because I was now going to purposely enter the grieving process, which I had avoided before. Um, and quite frankly, I wasn't going to lay on anybody's couch. That was part of my male mentality. I was not going to expose myself to others. So I would do what men generally do, and that was I would read a book on it but there were no books. Um, I don't mean to be snarky about it, but there are books on the shelf for women who grieve. There are books on the shelf for children who grieve. There are books on the shelf for grieving the loss of your turtle, but there were no books out there specifically for men who are grieving the loss of a loved one. Um, That led me because I was so fanatical about it at the time to do a deep dive myself, searching for the answers to why I felt the way that I did. Because quite frankly, and maybe your listeners can, Uh, identify with this. I had a spouse at the time who was typically debilitated in her grief, who cried quite a bit. Um, That to me seemed foreign. I wasn't crying a lot. And I I was doing other things to process my grief inside, although I didn't know it at the time. But during that time, it also brought great confusion to me. And it also brought suspicions of what she actually asked me one time, which was, did you not love our child as much as you said, because you aren't crying the way that I did? which led me to wonder, did I not love my child as much as I thought I did because I'm not debilitated in his grief? That bothered me quite a bit because the answer to that, of course, was yes, I loved my child. I just wasn't grieving the way that other people around me were grieving. Um, The long and short of that, to give you the spoiler end of that part of it, was I came out to find out that I'm okay. That's me, and that's how I process my grief. However, how did you find that out? Did you come to that through a, just a, a conclusion within yourself or were you starting to talk to professionals or were, how did you come to that? Probably. Because for me, with my grief, but I am obviously a woman, mm-hmm. I immediately went to a life transition coach and I started working with people in addition to reading books. So how did that realization come to you? I dove into it. I dove into white papers. I dove into everything that I could find on emotions and I dove into the the diversities in between male versus female expressions and processing emotions. I was also blessed, uh, not that I sought him out, but blessed to have a wonderful mentor who is a thanatologist. He's a psychiatrist and and studies thanatology, which is a study of death on the living. Oh, that's Um, amazing. I had friends that are uh, anthropologists who study human behavior, uh, and I got up with them. 
And as this went forward, and I realized that I was on a healing path, and, and gosh knows it will never completely heal, nor do we want to. But as I was on a healing path to the point where I thought that I was finding peace and purpose again, John came to me and said, write a book. And I said, why? He said, because the last thing you were doing was uh, answering uh, requests for proposals on government contracts, and you were writing to win somebody else $300 million a year. Why can't you write a book and help other people who are going through the same thing that you're going through? So I did. I wrote, Sometimes I Cry in the Shower, A Grieving Father's Journey to Wholeness and Healing. And the book is so much more than just about a loss. It's about how I discovered my my basically my self-esteem, my self-worth, how I rediscovered my inspiration and my motivation and my creativity. It's a, a wonderful story of what I went through in the discovery process, not just about loss itself, but the victories that came from that. Well, that's amazing also because it sounds like you were, and correct me if you disagree, but it sounds to me like you had this mask that you thought was you with this macho guy in yes. the Marines and all of that. And you were able to do all of this and suddenly you were softening and you were opening up to so many other ways of being. But here's the key to that is I realized that was me, that I wasn't someone who was going to openly express my grief on the outside. And that meant that I was okay. You follow me? Yeah. Yeah. Because we are all as unique as snowflakes and fingerprints, but yet there are diversities in males versus females. There, there are males that are actually diverse from other males. There are males that will openly express their emotions. Generally, 80% of us are kind of that, you know, atypical male where we internalize and, and we're action oriented. We, we, we're, we're goal setters and we're go doers. We're not that social creature that a woman might be where she wants empathy and to express her pains on an outward motion. Um, it all came down to the fact that I'm okay. I hate to keep repeating that, but if there's anything we can take from this, I discovered that I'm fine. And then you took from this, and how did you start to get into your world of doing presentations and, and speaking to this and having this become such an expertise for you? It wasn't just, long after the book came out, that first book, that I began to get invitations from nonprofit organizations solely because I was a man willing to stand on a stage and talk about what I went through. That was pure and simply it. And I loved it because when you go to, and it's funny, the first conference that I ever went to with 1,200 people there where I was going to, to do a workshop, uh, I walked in on Friday morning thinking I was going to walk into a solemn environment where everyone was crying and it was all about grief and loss. And I walked into the most heartwarming, just gathering of people that, that I've ever met in my life. Now, this continues at all the other conferences as well, but there was laughter and yes, there were tears, but there was uh, just a togetherness of people that have all been through the fire and wanted to support and hold each other, that it was addicting. So when I went through my first one, when I started getting invitations to do it again, yes, I was going to, because each one was therapeutic for me. I always said each time I went to try to share something, I probably took three times as much home with me when I went there to provide a workshop where they thought I was there to give some, uh, something to them, I took away more. Yeah, I can relate to that. I feel that way with this podcast. Every time I interview someone wonderful like you, I'm, I'm gaining a new friend, I'm getting new insights, and it's taking me further than I ever would have imagined. And this right. also has sprung from my journey of what happened with me. You talk about the different grieving styles of men and women. Can women, men and women heal together or are they so disparate that 
it's just two separate paths completely. Now, one of the common myths out there, you've probably heard this too, is especially in the loss of a child, is that you're going to end up getting a divorce. You got to be very careful. You could wind up getting a divorce because you've lost a child, which is just a myth. There's no figures out there. The figures that are out there put no evidence that the loss of a child will create a divorce. However, it can create difficulties. The, the big ticket item to look at in this is the fact that if there is a divorce in a relationship after the loss of a child, it usually becomes, it, it's usually because there was some underlying condition in the marriage that created that. For the majority, and I've met with hundreds and hundreds of couples that have come through a loss together, and they'll tell you how much stronger they are after that loss. Again, like us, they, they prefer not to be stronger. They would prefer that that situation didn't come up, so they would find more strength in their relationships. But because of our differences, we're different for a reason, men and women. You have strengths that complement me, and I have strengths that complicate you. And in a wonderful relationship, that's how it should work. The problem is that, that during a personal crisis like loss, like the loss of a child, I'm going to go through experiences of emotions that I've never had before. And if I have had them, I've certainly never had them on the intensity level that I'm feeling now. My spouse is going to go through brand new emotions or emotions that she's never felt on that intensity level before. So I'm trying to deal with me and I'm looking at you going, well, you're a freak. What are you going through? And you're going through something completely different to me because you're more external with yours and I'm more internal. I don't understand me right now, but I'm looking at you going, I don't understand you. It can be uh, in a lot of my workshops, the, the workshops on male versus female grief, I call them when Jack and Jill collide in grief. And they're actually very humorous workshops because I can point out the differences in men and women that are obvious and we don't think about them. But when we become aware that there are differences, when we understand that there are differences that you're going to react in a different way than I am, then we have compassion and understanding for each other. We get it. We know that, that every now and then I'm going to have to sit down and let you cry on my shoulder. Every now and then, you're just going to have to let me be that action-oriented systemizer and itemizer guy that I'm going to be and let me go hide in my cave when I need to go hide in my cave. Make sense? It makes sense. And these are, these are inherent traits that, that have been with us since our days back on the Serengeti. It's, it's nature and nurture. We're, men are trained, and so are women trained through nurture and a, a number of mannerisms that we carry with us today. Big boys don't cry, all this, but... All that still goes back and it lies within our DNA from the dawn of time. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I think it also lends itself when you go through something like this to teach a tremendous amount of acceptance. You're no longer judging each other and you're no longer therefore judging other people. Exactly. And you, know? and you come to realize it is my strengths. The fact that you are crying quite a bit and you feel I hate to keep using this word, but it's the best one to do it debilitated in a way. And I'm an action guy. So guess what? I can go take care of this and, and you can do what you need to do. And I'll come back and I'll support you when I can. Well, you've written three other books also, haven't you? I have. I wrote. Can you uh, talk to us about them? I had finished up with sometimes I cry in the shower and was enjoying the fact that I wasn't writing when John said, you're going to write another book. <laughs> I had. <laughs> He's you know, quite I'll, the taskmaster, isn't he? He is. Um, well, I'll put it to you this way, and I'll try to make it brief, but I had accepted an opportunity to go on Trinity Broadcast Network to talk about uh, the book and about grief recovery. And while I was there, the, the host was, hostess was wonderful, but she just kept bringing up, you know, what about when Sally grieves and Bobby is in grief and this grief and that grief? And I very tactfully said, and I don't know where it came from other than John, 
I just want you to remember that grief is just a word. Grief is not an emotion. Grief is a container word that holds the anger, the fear, the confusion, the anxiety that you go through after you've lost a loved one. So grief isn't a word. It's just a container word that holds all the emotion. So while I was driving home from the interview, I, I was trying to figure out a way that I could help my fellow men who need to visualize things uh, come down with the concept that grief is not an emotion. And I realized that if it's a container word and it contains all those emotions, I started visualizing all those emotions being in manila folders. And those manila folders were inside of a carrying case, which we normally associate with a briefcase. But then I called it the grief case. Oh, wow. So it became a concept of how to actually go into those individual manila folders. And keep in mind, the grief case, and you know this as well as I do, when you had your loss, somebody handed you your grief. You can't put it down. You can't put it aside. You can't leave it behind. It's going to be with us at some level for the rest of our lives. But in my concept of the grief case, that's fine. It's going to be heavy at first. It's going to be burdensome. It, it trips us up in social environments. It trips us up at work because it's confusing and heavy and just an awful thing to lug around with you. But as you get into those manila folders and you start to take out papers that are maybe false guilt and false anger and things like that, each manila folder starts to become lighter. You're never going to empty them completely because I don't want to. Part of what's in those folders now makes me the compassionate human being that I am now. So I don't want to lose that. And I can't lose a grief case, but you know what? Now it's a whole lot lighter. And now I want to walk up to Irene and show her my grief case and go, Say Jonathan's name. He's in this grief case. And you know what else is in that grief case? Right now, flip-flops and some suntan lotion. Because <laughs> I can now take a break from my grief. I have to carry it with me, but I can use it to at least find some peace and purpose. Well, that's bringing me to another question. Oh, wait. I want to hear about your other two books also. But as far as this one is concerned, mm -hmm. um, if you have all those emotions in those folders in the grief case. Right. Most men are not aware that they necessarily have all those emotions in the grief case. So how do they come? Did you identify them through the book so they start to get in touch with that? How do they identify that? We need to let men know right now, if you have any male listeners, or the women can go and tell their men that they can look it up. It is a uh, psych psychiatric truth that men express or men feel more emotions on a daily basis than women do. Wow. You're kidding. Nope. But we internalize those emotions, don't we? Now, you know we're internalizing them because, quite frankly, men can be moody little SOBs, can't we? Yes. That's because we're, we're, we're emoting inside. Does that make sense? Yes. We're going to hide in our cave. We're not yes. going to express them outward. We're going to go hide and do it. We are emotional creatures. The problem is I equate emotions more so to our sixth sense than I do ESP. Because without expressing our emotions or feeling our emotions, I don't think we would have survived as a species. That emotion of fear kept us alive. That, that emotion of joy kept us creative and allowed us to build. That emotion of, of just love allowed us to procreate in so many ways. Um, we need those emotions. And those emotions are a lot like a stream that goes to a forest. If, if you start damming it up, it's going to back up behind itself and it's going to kill out all the floor, the beautiful floor and fauna that's back there. But then the big storm comes, the loss that I went through. And when all that rain starts to come down through there and it hits that dam that's already backed up, then it's going to blow forward if I don't control it in some way. All in those road rage or God only knows what. Yeah, they're all going to come spewing out. So not only is it going to damage what's behind it, it's going to damage what's in front of it too. You need to see the emotions. It doesn't mean you have to express them outwardly. 
It means you have to process them the way that you were designed as a man to do and process them internally. Does that make sense? Yeah, the, I think Grief that itself, is. most people don't realize that, that grief is an internal process. Mourning is our external process of the loss. Grief is our internal process. It only becomes external when it becomes overwhelming inside. Does that make sense? Yeah. So let me ask you, so for instance, all right, now a man, he's read the grief case and he's saying, man, I am pissed. I am so angry. I am sitting here in my cave and I am boiling. How? All right. So now he's recognizing that. How does he uh, do something about it? Do, do something. something. About the, 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 the mother who had a child who was killed by a drunk driver took her anger and created Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Anger is a wonderful thing as long as you're not harming yourself or others. Express your angers in healthy ways, but express it. I, you know what? And We'll be as cliche as go out back and throw plates against the wall. Do something. If you back up that, that feeling inside, especially when it becomes overwhelming, you repress your emotions and you know as well as I do, those emotions will come out. They'll come out eventually. And the scary part of it is if they don't come out, where do they go? They go back into your subconscious, which controls you without your conscious effort. Does it not? It, it, it does. allows your heart to beat. It allows your lungs to breathe. But now it becomes a part of your persona. So that grouchy guy out there who once had a wonderful disposition is now permanently stuck being a, an a-hole. Okay. And he may get sick also because all those emotions stuck inside, where do they go? Right. They, they, they it often brings internal. about physical ailments. Yeah. And that's another key thing that I tell a lot of people too is we've got to realize that in anxiety and anger and all these things inside the brain, these emotions were meant to be very short-term right? We talk about the fight or flight, do we not? When you go through fight or flight, there's a series of, of hormones and chemicals that are dumped into your body that are meant for you to escape from a certain situation. So it's meant to be very, very short term. When you take some of the emotions that we get involved in with grief, you are constantly under a barrage of chemicals coming from your mind that are not meant to be in the body long term and is very detrimental to your physical health and your mental health as well. So these emotions have to come out. They don't have to come out externally so the public sees them. That's why sometimes I cry in the shower. Make sense? Yeah, but at least you're conscious about what's going on. And you're not like sitting in your cave and not aware and constantly sabotaging yourself. Bingo. I, I'm doing what's, what, what we call grief work, which is yes. a viable thing that has to be done. And it's no less difficult than digging a ditch or you know, taking a final exam. It's, it's very excruciating. So advise the ladies in this audience who love their men mm -hmm. who are grieving, how, and also the men who are going to work and they're grieving, what support does a man who is grieving need to move forward in the healthy healing processes? And what are some of those processes? Well, the, the support that he needs is an understanding from others. That's just the way he is. And the biggest support he needs, I hate to say this, is from himself. As I alluded to earlier, one of my biggest problems was wondering to myself whether I was messed up inside. Um, people would say, you're not crying, so uh, there must be something wrong with you. So I would say, well, I'm not crying, so there must be something wrong with me. Just realize that, again, we're all individuals. We're going to grieve in our own process. There's no linear timeline to it. Uh, as long as you're not stuck in grief and you're moving forward, and just by listening to uh, Irene's wonderful podcast. That's a step moving forward. 
You can't sit here and go, I'm here because I'm not moving forward. This is moving forward. For a woman to support somebody that, or another man that she knows is, is having a problem because she thinks he's stuck in grief, take a look, see what he's doing. Just because he is not crying openly, just because he is not despondent and debilitated doesn't mean that he's not going through the processes. There are indications out there that somebody might be stuck in complicated grief. And quite frankly, men are a little harder to determine whether or not that's going on. But never stop with the support. Let him know that you're there. And if he needs to talk, it's so funny. We go to these, especially some of the regional meetings out there for some of these grief support groups. And I'll have wives that tell me that her husband won't come. But as soon as she walks back in the door, he wants to know everything that was said there. So that means that he's relying on you for some of his emotional support. You express it outwardly for him, right? Absolutely. I'm sure a lot of women can relate to that. Sure. Absolutely. And going to work has got to be one of the biggest problems out there because nine times out of 10, you know, we've got a problem here in America where the average number of paid bereaved leave, pre, I'm sorry, I can't speak, paid bereaved leave days is only three. Right. Um, get over it. Just get yeah. over it. Get over and get back. And that's fine. I was an executive too. I realize that businesses are in the business of doing business and that means boots on the ground doing the job, but they also have to take care of their employees. But my point to that is that you're going back to work, even say after a week, week and a half, you're just transitioning from a point where you thought the emotions were relentless and never ending and they, they were just hitting you. Now you're in, in grief waves and everybody understands that. I think I'm okay. And boom, I'm all of a sudden hit with a a big feeling of anger or fear or, or what have you, loneliness. Um, you got used to that at home and you could deal with it at home, but now you're going into an environment that, believe it or not, is now going to be strange to you. What was once a second home in a comfortable environment might now seem odd. Well, people so, may be avoiding you because they're uncomfortable to speak to you about what's happened to you. Oh, yeah. And I would imagine also, and I'm sure you know much more about this than I do, but I'm thinking about the fact that for myself, when I, when I was grieving so hard for my husband, I kind of um, froze in certain ways. I couldn't focus or process. So now the guy is expected to get back on the job, just get over it and keep going. And he's not in touch with the fact of why can't I think straight? Well, your mind is certainly occupied with other things, and rightfully so. Even if it's not just about the emotions itself, uh, in your case, in, in the case of many people out there that are probably listening to this podcast, um, your mind also has responsibilities it has to care for. I mean, there's legal responsibilities. You have to go down to the bank. You have to do this. You have to do that. There's so many things that go along with it that aren't done within the first week, week and a half of uh, a loss. Um, the mind is occupied. The, the mind is overtaxed. Um, and we've got to be cognizant of that. Now, we come back to work and work has got to be done. A compassionate company just has to realize that sometimes we're going to have to see her walk off and go to a quiet place and know that that's okay. Sometimes see her walk off and, and go for a walk and that's okay. Sometimes put a hand on her shoulder and say, why don't you take a break for a little while, right? Because we don't want to talk about it at work and they're uncomfortable and they don't want to talk about it at work. And we get that. We understand. Um, but be compassionate and understanding of it. Realize that when a guy comes back to work and he's doing a hazardous job, like let's say a forklift operator. You might want to just pull him off of that for, say, the first two or three days and just keep an eye on him. And for God's sakes, be honest with him about it. This is why we're doing this. We have other responsibilities. We have employees, customers, clients, people that we have to take care of. I'm going to give you a couple of days before you hop back up on that forklift. You might think you're okay, but we're going to see. 
I think and that's a wonderful thing because the employer is is also teaching this man about compassion for himself because they're showing him compassion on the job. Can you tell us about the other two books you wrote? I mean, your grief case sounds fabulous. Well, I appreciate that. It's it's a great concept. It's just something I think is, is I came back from Trinity Broadcast Network, John and God put it in my head. So I, yeah. I came up with that one and it was great. Uh, John made me write it. The third one is really just a nightstand book. It's uh, Grief Healings 365. And there are 365 days in there, including, I think, extras for Mother's Day and Christmas and a couple other days where I went back in time. I went back to the days of Moses. I went through Shakespeare. I went through all of those. Grief as old as the dawn of man. You know that. And there are famous quotes out there from people that we respect, whether they be uh, playwrights or whether they be politicians from days of yore, whether it's Socrates, whether it's uh, ancient Chinese theorists. Uh, and I compiled those 365 quotes and I put one for each day of the year so that you don't need to start it on January 1st. You can start it on whatever day that you pick up the book. And you can go through that thought when you wake up in the morning, and carry it with you through the day. It's what Abraham Lincoln expressed about his grief. It's what Mark Twain expressed about his grief. Carry their inspirational thoughts with you for the day. And maybe when you come home at night, write down your feelings about it, wake up the next morning and go to the next day. And then spend a year doing that and come back and see where you were when you flip back open today's date and how you were feeling and how you've progressed to it. And then number four was grief in the workplace. And that's my latest book. And that's what I do a lot of now is get into businesses and teach them about. And I hate to say this because it's not as compassionate as my other work, because the way I'm going to get to my fellow executives is through their wallet. So I tell them right up front that studies show very reliable and accepted studies that American businesses are losing over $100 billion in annual revenue. It's billion dollars each and every year to the hidden direct and indirect costs of grief in the workplace. Wow. And that's a whole lot of money that they can get rid of without spending a dime. Wow. What an eye-opener for them. For well, if we look at the, the, uh, the American, uh, uh, which foundation is it? Uh, the American Hospice Foundation will tell you that every year in the United States, every year, over 4 million active employees experience a loss of a loved one. 10 to 15% of working age adults, 10 to 15% of working age adults will experience child loss in a year. You've got, even the CDC stats show you that every year, 1 million women experience a miscarriage. Wow. Every year, 26,000 women experience a stillbirth. These women are all working age women. And they're grieving. Either that, uh, yes, they are. I don't want to say that. Not only are they grieving, but is a significant other, is a spouse. Right, right. So you double your figures right there. And if that's the case, then that means that one out of every four employees right now in any given workplace are grieving the loss of somebody. And much more than that, if, if we're looking at four million employees experience the death of a loved one every year, now we look at, at some psychiatric reviews that tell us that, that get this, 10 to 20% of bereaved individuals will experience a form of complicated grief, which carries with it typical impairments to either mental facilities or even physical impairments. So if we look at that 4 million figure, that means that returning from bereavement work are 400,000 to 600,000 individuals going through complicated grief every year. Going back to the American workplace. Wow. We still have $100 billion in loss 
because we're treating it with indifference. And in some cases, I hate to say it, um, not just indifference, but intolerance, hostility. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm not surprised at that at all. And it wouldn't cost them a dime. All they need is the awareness and understanding of what we go through. Because businesses have done a miraculous job turning things around in the last decade, two decades, as far as morale and welfare programs. They are offering employees the world, and it's wonderful, but they haven't touched grief. So do you have any feel-good story about doing a presentation with one of these companies and turning something around for the people in the company through the, through the uh, CEO or whoever you shocked with your statistics and you enlightened? How about one wonderful company that did it for themselves? How about I tell you about Delta Airlines? I get the honor of going down every year to Delta Airlines to be a keynote speaker. They have a yearly event where they fly in bereaved employees. And I get to be the keynote speaker at their headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. They have an internal peer bereavement support group that they support, they endorse, they provide funds for. They make it a requirement that all managers across the country allow their bereaved employees to, to come and attend this. They give them airline tickets to come in. This is amazing. I cannot tell you the results of this peer support group because that's proprietary information for Delta Airlines alone. However, I can tell you that in seven years, they have not discontinued the program. That's fantastic. It is fantastic. And They're that's a role what, model. They're a role model for others. That's what I advocate for every business out there. They've got peer support groups for mentoring. They've got peer support groups for a number of different things in the workplace. If we're looking at one out of every four employee every moment being bereaved and 4 million bereaved employees returning to the workplace every year, studies have shown that an employee who is supported through their grief, 62% of them will turn around and support other employees during personal crisis. Why can't we take advantage of that? It's sort of like paying it forward. It is. It is. But mortality is an uncomfortable topic. It's not something we discuss in a boardroom. And it's not something we discuss when we're doing business planning. When I walked back into work and I had lost my son, there were a dozen other men there who had sons or children. Mm. And for them to look at me, they had to look at me and realize, oh, my gosh, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Mortality is uncomfortable. They turn from that in their mind and they don't want to address it. And I understand it. That's the reason why, yes, they do jump into a supply closet when they see me walking down the hallway. One of my biggest anecdotes, and it's a very small example of how it impacts the workplace, but before I uh, lost John, I had nine managers who were my direct reports in the office, 1,500 employees, but nine managers who reported directly to me. And we got into a habit of every morning, very casually at first, all nine managers would stop by one by one sometime in the morning with a cup of coffee just to say hello. And that turned into, hey, what are you doing today? And hey, what are you doing today? Turned into business planning for the day. And five minute thing, but at least I knew where their head was every day and I didn't have to go chase them down. And it was wonderful. Might not be everybody's business plan, but it worked for me. These little impromptu casual un or casual meetings. But then I lost John and I went back to work. And nobody stopped by my door anymore. Oh, my. Why? Because they were uncomfortable, uncomfortable themselves. Yes. I would they think. They didn't know what to say, right? If they would have had a good leadership there, leadership would have briefed them. on what, And this is important, especially if you've lost somebody. Let your, let your work know what you've gone through. And it's important because if they don't brief people on what you've gone through, when you go back to work, you're going to get questioned 
a dozen times or more every day by your coworkers, what happened? What happened? Tell me what happened. And you're going to have to repeat your story of loss over and over again, right? So let's get in front of that at least. Let's go ahead and brief your, your teammates and coworkers on what happened. So you don't have to do that when you go back. Respectfully, within privacy limits, mind you, but that's just one small example. But there's another part that that does, because if you're, if you're that enlightened and you're helping them, maybe you're helping them to um, come with more sensitive, empathetic responses to the person who's grieving, because a lot of people, because they're uncomfortable, say horrible things. Oh, they do. Someone who has lost a child, a spouse, or whatever. I, I experienced that. Oh, I did too. I'll tell you one that will absolutely make you gasp when I tell you this. You know, you'll, and what you're speaking of are the comments of, you're young, at least you can marry again, right? Which to them, I always reply, yeah, it's like an iPhone. That's you what can I always to. have another child. You can I, always. Yeah, I wanted well, to trade up. It's an iPhone. I can just get a new model, right? right. Uh, I dropped right. this one and broke it, so I'll just go get another one. Um, I was actually approached by someone that I considered a friend who looked at me and said, well, at least you don't have to worry about college tuition now. Oh, my God. So wow. that, that was one that I, I it took a great deal of effort to turn and walk away from, but I did. But for the most part, I want people to realize that, that they don't do this out of malice. They do it out of that, that inherent training that we've had since childhood that when Irene's in discomfort, I need to approach her and comfort her somehow. And we'd rather it just be a hand on a shoulder and a, a head nod. But we've also been taught you need to say something, but they don't know what to say. And it comes out as some of the worst things that they could ever say. God rest, I, God bless them. I, I, I get it. It's not out of malice. It's not meant to be. But it's hard when it's coming at you. It's really, yeah, it really, is. really difficult. It is. Get a puppy. It'll keep you company at home. I was told that, by the way. If you get bet, a yeah. dog, if you get a dog, you won't miss your husband at all. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, all right. I got to walk this thing at six o'clock in the morning, and I'm just gonna. It's just gonna take the place of my husband. Yeah. Really? Well, do I need to invest in a duck? Can I get a goldfish? It's a lot cheaper. <laughs> right. <laughs> A hamster, something. I'm not going full-blown dog. <laughs> but, but again, the point to that is it's not generally said out of malice. It's uncomfortable. It's, uncomfortable. it's uncomfortableness with mortality. And, and you can't really blame them. You'd rather they didn't say things. And that's one of the things I teach business leaders is, yes, you need to go to funerary services, but you don't need to approach your employee. Just being there is enough to let him or her know that you care enough to be there. Nine times out of 10, they're going to be too busy, either with parts of the ceremony or being surrounded by other family members. But my gosh, when I looked across and I saw my, the president of my company there, and he nodded his head to me, that's all he needed to do. It was absolutely perfect. You wow. I, I hear you. Ron, everyone is going to want to find out more about you from this interview. How can our, how can our listeners contact you? And do you have anything special you'd like to offer or say to them today? They can contact me uh, directly, R. Glenn Kelly at rglennkelly.com. I want to make that clear. It's R. Uh -huh, the first Glenn. name is Ron, but it's R. Glenn, G-L-E-N-N. -N. Yeah, because the, the name R. Kelly, the, the name R. Kelly was already taken up, and I figured right, it probably right. wasn't a good one to use. So I figured that out. Yeah. I, I went with R. Glenn Kelly because I also write fiction books, and I wanted to keep the two separate. I write fiction books under the name Ron Kelly, and we'll oh. talk about that another time. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, send me an email directly. Uh, my phone number is on my website. The website is the same, rglennkelly, R-G-L-E-N-N-K-E-L-L-Y.com. Um, all my programs are on there. I've got another motivational speaking program, which is called Ashes to Inspiration, where I talk about coming out the other side, which is 
why I want my final thing that I could pass on to anybody is exactly what we kind of broached before. If, if I were to say anything, I hear it all the time from myself and I hear it from others that the bottom had dropped out of my life or I've been through the fire and Irene and I have both been through the fire. Well, where do you go when you drop out? Where do you go when the bottom drops out of your life? Because the bottom has dropped out of my life many times. I lost both my parents at way too young of an age. I've had unwanted divorce in my life. I've had a cheating spouse in my life. The bottom has dropped money problems, career problems. The bottom has dropped out. But you know what I dropped into? I dropped into me. I dropped into my foundation. And everybody that goes through what we're going through now will feel like the bottom has dropped out. But I promise you, you're only dropping into yourself right? You go through the fire. As I said before, it only consumes falsities. It leaves everything that's true completely unconsumed. What it's done, what it's done for me is it's allowed me to realize that I can live a life of peace and purpose. And I don't leave John behind. I carry his unconditional love with me every moment of the day. He inspires me. He motivates me. He annoys me. He makes me do things that I don't want to do. But you know what? I am a man who knows unconditional love. I'm a man who knows a healthy ego now. I'm a man who is on a mission to serve others and love doing every minute of it. And, you know, from speaking with you, and I, you know, even though our listeners are getting the audio of this, I can see you on the Zoom. (laughs) I can also say that you're a man who not only carries your sadness and grief, but you're a happy man. Yes. Which is amazing that that can and I am too. People can't get over that because I turned my pain into a, a mission that's helping people and it fulfills me. Right. And I feel that that's the same way with you. Some of the best people that you'll ever meet have gone through a hard past. You know, it's a transition that brings us through the fire that burns all the falsities. It makes you realize I, I lived a life at one time as a cop in a jarhead and all that fun stuff that I lived a life based off what you thought of me. Right? What do people well, think? What I don't do live a life think? like that anymore. I live a life now. What do they think of me? I, I live a life now of uh, what do I think of me? Am I doing the right thing? Now, keep in mind, ego is important. We need ego. We just don't need a, we don't need a unhealthy ego. Ego allows us to get up and go work in an office and dress appropriately <laughs> instead of going in in shorts and flip-flops. That's just getting along in society. Right. That's right. That's right. But I don't need to live a life where I worry about that. My only concern is what Irene thinks about me. Does she know I was a jarhead? Does she know that I was this big, bad A guy who went out and did this and did that? No, no. I'm concerned that that right now I want to live my life with peace and purpose and passion and creativity and motivation and inspiration. And it's out there for people that right now feel like, oh, my God, the bottom dropped out and I'm lost. You will find yourself through the help of Irene, through the help of me, through the help of yourself, but you will find yourself. And there is a life out there of peace and purpose, grabbing your loved one. They might be waiting on the other side, but they're still with you every day and walking down this path. We'll walk down the path with you. I I might be a little ahead. I might be a little behind you, but we can both walk down the path. But the fact that you've been on the path gives other people hope that they can and inspires them that they can also walk on their own path yeah. and they'll be okay. They can the, be okay. The bottom drops out and we drop into ourselves. We go through the fire and it burns everything untrue. That's beautiful. Fabulous. So you've already said it in a million ways, but what would you say your tip is for finding joy in life? 
just that realize that there is peace and purpose, no matter what hardships and, and animosities that we go through in life. It's, it's life. Um, you know, I'm a little spiritual out there where I believe that we were sent down here for a, a learning lesson that, uh, we came down here to learn something that gives me a great deal of ease with Jonathan too, knowing that he had his own plan with God and that his plan was to come down here for 16 years and do something. And that makes me realize that at some point he and God pointed down and said, there's a good guy you can go spend 16 years with, right? That means God's got a plan for me. It's got, we've got a plan for all of us. We just don't know what it is, but we'll spend our life finding peace and purpose trying to find out. Absolutely. That's wonderful. Well, actually, in a way, it, I don't, uh, and from my world, I would say you and John had, had a contract and agreement that this was going to happen to, to open you to your purpose. Mm-hmm. And I'll see him again, and we'll talk about that. For yes. him, I always say it'll be, it'll be the beat of one wing for him before I see him again. And for me, it'll, be a, it'll seem like, you know, not seem like a lifetime. It will be a lifetime. Absolutely. I'm the impatient one. He's the one who's just going, yeah, I'll be here. He'll be there. Absolutely. Ron, this has been wonderful. I can't thank you enough. I have enjoyed every moment of it. It's just wonderful. This is such a moving conversation. And I know this is also going to inform how men and women relate to each other when they're grieving, too. I hope they do. I I once had somebody tell me, how do I give them tips on, on communicating with each other? I said, tell them to communicate with each other. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know it's been such a pleasure bringing your insights about men and grief to our and they are very caring to our very caring grief and rebirth listening audience and heads up everyone ron is going to be an inspiring part of our grief and rebirth podcast father's day online event on tuesday june 11th at 7 30 p.m you're in for an enlightening and moving experience, as you can know now, just because you're, you've now met one half of this <laughs> wonderful experience you're going to be having. And uh, it's just going to be amazing. Uh, all about different aspects of fatherhood and, uh, you know, bringing people together about dad. And uh, you will be receiving more details about this soon, so be sure to stay tuned. Thanks again, Ron. And as I often like to say, especially to you today, surely to be continued. Bye for now.